Disney presents The Wonderful World of Color. Hello, divers. Coming to you from Studio D, this is the Deep Dive Microcast, a brief look into things that I find interesting, and I hope you do too. I'm Tom Feeney, raconteur, junior rocketeer, and writer for Wang's Chop Movie Magazine. This edition of the Deep Dive Microcast deals with a shadowy government organization devoted to keeping historic treasures hidden under lock and key in a nuclear bomb-proof vault forever kept from seeing the light of day. And that's a good thing because we're talking about movies, and that government organization is the United States National Film Registry. The National Film Registry is part of the renowned Library of Congress. Back in 1800, as the seat of America's government was moving from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., President John Adams approved an act of Congress allowing for the creation of their own library. Sadly, during the War of 1812, the Capitol building was destroyed by the British along with the original library. By this time, former President Thomas Jefferson had acquired the largest personal collection of books in the United States. Jefferson offered to sell his library to Congress. They purchased Jefferson's library for $23,950 in 1815. A second fire on Christmas Eve of 1851 destroyed nearly two-thirds of the over 6,000 volumes Congress had purchased from Jefferson. Originally, the library was for use primarily by Congress and only took up a small wing of the Capitol. There was, however, a tremendous need for a separate building to house the ever-growing collection of books and other materials. After an architectural competition was held in 1873 to determine the style and structure, the official Library of Congress was built and opened in 1897. The Thomas Jefferson Building is open to the public every day, except Sundays, Mondays, and certain holidays. If you get the chance to go, free passes are available on their website, which is loc.gov. Around the same time the Library of Congress was getting its own dedicated building, the motion picture industry was in its infancy. But it wasn't until a century later that an official government agency was created to protect and preserve its cinematic history. That is the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, born from the National Film Preservation Act of 1988 consisting of several laws pertaining to the art of cinema and its conservancy. 
So how did this all come about? Well, the answer lies in the name of the act itself, preservation. Staggeringly, over half of American movies made before 1950 are lost, and less than 10% of films made before 1929 have survived to this day. When a film is added to the registry, the Library of Congress works with the filmmakers and or the copyright holders to make sure a copy of the film is cataloged, preserved, and properly stored. You see, film is fragile and has a nasty tendency to decay, disintegrate, and even burst into flames. So it must be kept under highly controlled conditions, preferably in a cold storage vault set to around 39 degrees Fahrenheit and 30% relative humidity. That job falls to the National Film Preservation Foundation, an independent public charity affiliated with the registry. The foundation uses its resources, including a yearly $15 million budget, to acquire materials for the library to restore and preserve. And it's not just films either. Videotapes, posters, scripts, soundtracks, even video games are part of the library's collection. Fun fact, according to an FAQ on the Library of Congress's website, the oldest film they have is a fragment called The Newark Athlete, made in 1891, and it runs only a few seconds in length. So what prompted the creation of the National Film Preservation Act? It can be traced back to the actions of one man. It's a name you may have heard of, but one you wouldn't expect to be involved. A media mogul nicknamed the Mouth of the South, the man who created cable channels TBS, TNT, and CNN, Ted Turner. Among his many wheelings and dealings over the decades was the purchase of movie studio MGM United Artists in 1986. The cost? a cool one and a half billion dollars. Suddenly, all of MGMUA's film library, all 2,200 films made before 1986, were Turner's to do with as he pleased. One of the things he wanted to do was to use primitive computer technology to colorize some of MGM's classic black and white movies. Titles like Casablanca, the Maltese Falcon and The Postman Always Rings Twice were among those colorized for television. Why? Well, money, of course. In Turner's estimation, people simply didn't want to watch black and white movies. Movies in color had higher viewership and therefore could command higher advertising rates. Ted Turner loves color, the color of money. There are obviously a lot of advantages to being able to colorize black and white films. More primetime exposure for classic films, more viewers than ever before, and of course, more revenue on every side. He's probably right. Lights, camera, color. In this age of high-tech, big-screen, stereo sound entertainment, black and white films are a tough sell to network, local, and cable TV, or to video stores. Like others, Ted Turner believes that most people won't watch, won't rent, won't buy anything but color. 
What's going on here is a battle between the two forces that make up Hollywood, art and commerce. Now, the businessmen say they're simply using a new technology to get new profits out of an old product. But the artists sum it up in one word, greed. Because the technology is still in its infancy, much of the color is washed out, blurry and inconsistent. There are some 17,000 black and white films in the public domain. The U.S. Copyright Office is deciding whether companies that market color versions of old classics can copyright them. If it says yes, expect to see many more golden oldies in a coat of many colors. Needless to say, Hollywood filmmakers were aghast at this notion. To significantly alter classic films in this way was tantamount to adding a smile to the Mona Lisa. The movie industry got involved. There were appeals to the U.S. Copyright Office. There were lawsuits filed against Turner and the company that developed the colorization technology. Last November, a new colorized version of the black and white film classic Miracle on 34th Street was shown on television, and the ratings were higher than those recorded by the black and white version in previous years. The die was cast, the race was on to colorize more classics. But today, the Directors Guild of America filed a brief with the Copyright Office contending computer coloring of vintage films, and we quote, puts at risk unique American cultural heritage, end quote. Film preservation became a cause celebre among filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Orson Welles, and, ironically, George Lucas. Listen to our last Mysteries of the Deep podcast to find out why that's kind of funny. These and other filmmakers spoke before a session of Congress to plead their case for legislation to preserve America's motion picture history. Could an argument be made that the marketplace itself is going to settle these issues. That a, uh, uh, a Woody Allen or a Miles Foreman uh, or a Sidney Pollack or anybody else might say if they're going to direct a film, they're going to write into the contract and say, you ain't going to change it. Well, to some degree, it's handled in the marketplace, but the issue is much deeper than that. There are some directors that can control their work, and they're very fortunate. It's a very hard fight, and very few um, really have the clout to, to have complete control over their films. It's a very difficult fight. There are many directors that don't have that power and will never have it, and there are some that are deceased and their films exist. And this is a very strong moral issue that's, that's raised here. It isn't just uh, an issue that's okay in the marketplace because those directors that have enough success financially can dictate terms in their next contract. Um, the issue is large enough so that there should be an overriding principle that everyone adheres to that takes into account what's justifiable and what's not, and that is the protection and the, the um, respect given to American artists in any medium. In 1988, the Film Preservation Act was created, and with it, the National Film Registry. The best person to explain the mandate of the registry is the Librarian of Congress herself, Dr. Carla Hayden. Each year, I have the honor of selecting 25 motion pictures for the Library of Congress National Film Registry that are deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. In other words, films that represent our rich and diverse cinematic 
heritage, guaranteeing that they will be around for future generations. Each year, members of the registry's board, comprised of 44 individuals who represent the diversity of the film industry, vote to select 25 films to add to the Library of Congress's permanent collection. Now, the public is welcome to suggest titles for the board to consider. If you like, you can submit your nominations on the Library of Congress's website. Again, that's loc.gov. As of 2022, there are currently 825 films on the registry. They include feature films, documentaries, short clips, and film that captures historical events. They run the gamut from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein to the infamous Zapruder film that captured the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The next 25 films to be included in the National Film Registry will be selected this December. Maybe this will be the year that Plan 9 from Outer Space will get its just due. I'm not holding my breath. Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at the deep dive podcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feeds. You can find links to those and our merch store in the bio of our Instagram page. From all of us here at Studio D, which, yet again, is just me and my cat, stay safe and take care. All clips used in the Deep Dive Microcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. The Deep Dive Lounge theme was arranged and performed by Robert Acorn, based on the original composition by Ryan Blaney. The Deep Dive Microcast is a production of Automaton Studios.